Galatians chapter 1. Good morning, Brenda. Um, verse 11. And uh, we're going to read all the way, I think, up to verse 24. So we'll just finish this little bit in chapter 1. So Galatians chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Juda Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Remember, Cephas is, uh, is Peter, right? You know, that, that was his original name. Um, and Jesus changed it to Peter, so Cephas. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and uh, Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul is uh, still kind of debating. He's still kind of um, giving reason and credence as to where his authority comes from. Re remember at the beginning, he's kind of talking about how they've gone away from the gospel he preached and so, you know, really the, the question that Paul's asking in the section is, what makes an apostle? What makes an apostle? Um, you, you know, is an apostle just one of the 12? Or just somebody who was around when Jesus was around? Because you see, James is an apostle. James, the brother, is an apostle who wrote uh, the book of James. Um, James, who we, we pretty much read in Scripture, didn't believe Jesus but then was present at the resurrection, was present at his death and present at his resurrection. And the Lord appeared to him. He was there on the day of Pentecost and he actually becomes one of the early church fathers. He ends up going to his death, being martyred for a belief that his older brother is the son of God, right? I mean, that would take a lot to convince you of that. And, and so James was considered then one of the apostles because he had been with Jesus. And so there's this debate possibly going on of, well, in order to be a real apostle, you have to have been with Jesus. And Paul wasn't with Jesus. Paul wasn't around Jesus. So the question Paul's asking is, is it more than just one of the 12? What makes an apostle? Ephesians 4, verse 11, later on, Paul will go to describe what um, sometimes in the church we call as like an apest model. Okay, apest model. And here's what 4.11 says in Ephesians um, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers 
Good morning, Hugh. You know, so that's the APEST model, the apostle, that, that we have some that are apostles. Apostles are those that, that do new things. Those that challenge and grow churches sometimes come from the apostle type lineage. There's preachers, those that just love preaching the word of God. There are those that are evangelists that are meant to go out and, and to evangelize. And, you know, their main salvation is like Billy Graham. He, he preached salvation messages almost every time, right? That was his method. He was an evangelist. You have shepherds. You have those that are great care pastors. You have those that walk alongside people and show compassion and empathy and counsel them and work with them. And maybe they're not the best preachers, right? And you have those that are teachers that love teaching only. And I'm like, let's put them in a class and uh, they'll teach the depth and all those type of things. And yet it never really is applied, right? Teaching is kind of the knowledge and information. And the preaching is what kind of helps apply it to their life. And the apostles kind of have a, a mixture of all of those. And so therefore are creating new things. And so Paul's going, what makes an apostle? You know, there are the, some out there that would say that there are no apostles after the 12, that that died. And they have a hard time with the Ephesians verse when Paul talks about the leadership of that. And they say, well, he was really speaking about those that were still alive. Those were the apostles that only are the ones that have been right with Jesus. And, and then Paul's going, but what about me? What about me? I, I wasn't with Jesus. My message didn't come from anybody teaching me, right? He's arguing that his authority and his power comes from God through the Holy Spirit's anointing, the Holy Spirit making it come alive in him. He's showing his dependence on God for the message, not on man. You know, he, he went and he spoke with Paul and, and he or Peter and he hangs out with Cephas, but he didn't didn't learn, it doesn't say from Peter. Peter didn't have to teach him the message. I mean, Paul would have known. Paul would have known the Old Testament. I, I, I envision Paul sitting with Peter and going, hey, what was it like? Tell me, I mean, when, when Jesus healed the blind man, when he touched the leper and, and you just saw them, be, was it like instantaneous? What was that like? And oh, walking on water? Really? You did what? You know, I mean, can you just imagine them having this conversation about all the things that happened when Jesus was alive? Peter wasn't happened to say, and here's how he he revealed. So if you read Isaiah and then the prophet of Isaiah and Isaiah says this or or what David said in the Psalms and that that portrayed. No, he got it. See, that was what the Holy Spirit did for Paul was he all these Old Testament passages that he knew by heart all of a sudden came alive. We talked about that last night in our Bible study about how the Holy Spirit, we use the word quickens us, how it takes scripture and information that we've learned over and over again. And all of a sudden it just, it comes alive. And, and we all of a sudden just like our eyes are open to something new. That's what happened on the road to Damascus and in those three days when, when, uh, Hey Sharon, Hey Jill, Hey Vicki, you know, when, when the Holy spirit brought Paul to life and this message and all these old Testament teachings, he goes, he fulfilled it. <laughs> right. Can you imagine what happened? 
And so what he's saying here in the, in the first of Galatians is no one taught me this. No human being, it was the Holy Spirit, it was God who gave me this message and gave me the authority to preach. That was what the anointing was. So I kind of hear Paul and I understand what he's saying a little bit. If you've ever preached a message, if you've ever been around a church, there are always those who will be like, well, that was good, but we need more anointed preachers. Or occasionally they'll say, well, that was an anointed message. As if all the others, hey, Frank, as if all the others you've ever preached weren't anointed, right? You know, like, I mean, you just came up with it on your own and you weren't trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. And here's what I've learned. And I think Paul was kind of speaking to that as well, because these Galatians didn't like his message. He didn't like, they didn't like his challenge. He, he didn't hold back. He didn't, I don't know if the words placate them, right? He, he, he didn't speak softly to them. He didn't always say, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You can keep doing what you're doing. I mean, if you want to say that people need to be circumcised, it's okay. You know, he didn't do that. He just came right out and said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, Paul had this way of just like hitting the nail on the head so many times. I mean, he, you know, we read it. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. I mean, he just calls it right out. He's not asking for them to say, oh, that was an anointed message, Pastor. Because he knows that the anointing comes from God and not from human agreement. Because uh, I'll tell you, and I, we have people that do it even in our church that will say, well, we really need anointed pastors. And well, that one was really anointed, Pastor. And, and you know, you're sitting there going, okay, I, I know you mean that as a compliment, but really, you know, do you understand what you're saying and all that? Because often we use words like that as a cop-out, right? It's anointed when I think you finally spoke about that hot topic that I really appreciate and like because I already got that one understood, but everybody else needs to hear it, <laughs> you know, or, or it's that hot topic that uh, we just, you know, unless you speak about this, then, well, it's not, it's not anointed. And that's kind of what Paul was saying here was, no, my anointing does not come from your agreement. My anointing comes from the Holy Spirit on me who speaks through me. Hey, Jody. And that's what the anointing was. You know, he begins then, he's kind of talking through his litany, you know, and remember in Philippians, he says that this, that his, his litany, his, his background, that it's nothing more than, than Human excrement, remember? Scubula is the, the Greek word. It means human excrement. That all of his earthly value of being a Pharisee of all Pharisees, a Jew of all Jew, all of those saints is nothing in comparison to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. And, and he's talking about in this whole little area about being called by God and how it's only God. It's not man who caused him from being a zealous Pharisee. That word zealous goes back to so many times in the Old Testament where different priests, different individuals, like Joshua and so many, they were considered zealous 
for the Lord. He was using a term that every good Jew would say, that's what you need to be. You need to be zealous for the Lord, right? And he's going, I was, but it was wrongly placed to where I went after the sect, you know, because Christianity wasn't really even a term yet, but it was this, I went after those believers. I went after those who said that the Messiah was a tortured, crucified heretic, not a conquering Messiah that would come in and remove us from Roman oppression. That's what they thought was going to happen. But yet the Holy Spirit quickened him to where he saw. Uh, if you watch the uh, series, The Chosen, uh, when it was on YouTube or Facebook, or, or by chance you go on, um, there's an app, Chosen, uh, Chosen app, and you can watch the different episodes. But it, it, des it describes Nicodemus as he's reading through some of those passages and going, Isaiah, uh, how could that, I mean, this sounds like this is Jesus. And he's, he's having the Holy Spirit begin to quicken him, which leads him to then, in John 3, go to Jesus in the middle of the night because he's still afraid. And not only that, because I, I love what Chosen does because it actually shows Jesus saying, come and follow me. But he was too afraid of leaving the power in the position that he had to actually follow him and be one of the disciples. But then at the crucifixion, remember, we see two people. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but it was Nicodemus and Joseph who are the ones who would take Jesus's body and prepare it for burial. Nicodemus is at that point said, I don't care about the rules of cleanliness. I don't care that because I'm touching a dead body, I cannot celebrate the Passover with everybody else. I will be unclean for seven days, you know, for the, the ritual uh, uncleanliness. It's in the Old Testament. He goes, I don't care because that person, that is Jesus. That is the son of God. And it changed him because the Old Testament quickened to him, just like what Paul is saying it did to him, not because of anything a human being taught, but because of what the Holy Spirit did when he was in the word. So he talks about this change from Pharisee to apostle, uh, an apostle, not of man, but of God and how the Holy Spirit has transformed him inwardly and transformed his heart. <laughs> he, he uses the term in here, um, let me find it. Uh, da, 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 da. Is it 15? Yeah, no, I'm not finding it. But he uses the term revelation in here that he he received it for. Um, up, 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 um, yeah, there we go. Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation, sometimes we have to be careful when we think of that term because um, Joseph Smith claimed to have a revelation, right? Joseph, claim, uh, Joseph uh, claimed to have a revelation. And that's not Joseph Smith uh, created the Mormons. It, it was a totally non-belief. Um, in fact, little side note, um, when he translated the Book of Mormon, supposedly, you know, getting the stone, the vision, um, there were two individuals with him, one both being family, and both of them turned from the Mormon belief, and both of them witnessed and said that really what he was doing was he had his head in a hat looking in a seer stone, and he would call out the letters that he saw. 
So it was divin uh, divination. He, he, he made the Book of Mormon through divination. Um, there's other historical things that show that he actually, um, why he went there. I mean, he was a part of, if you will, the Methodist movement. He, he was saved at a camp meeting revival, Joseph Smith, but yet his wife and child, the child, I, I think both of them died in, in childbirth, at least the child did. And he began to hate God and turn from God. And that's kind of a sad story when you think about it. But Joseph Smith claimed revelation. And that's not, by the way, you got to make sure you understand, that's not what Paul's claiming. He's not claiming that he saw a vision of an angel. He's not claiming that, uh, you know, there was some major vision. I mean, he's he's very clear. In Scripture, it's clear when they saw a vision. Like Peter saw the vision of the cloth and the animals that were all unclean. And God said, what I have created and called clean, don't you dare call unclean. Remember that? And so Paul's not saying that I saw a new revelation. He's not claiming that he has a new edge on the gospel. He's saying this is the same gospel that Peter and all the apostles are preaching to you, but they didn't teach it to me. It came through the Holy Spirit, quickening it and making it come alive to me. You know, the gospel, the gospel comes not only in word, not only in word, because we, we talked about it in our Bible study last night. You can read this for all you want, and it's nothing but words on pages, unless the Holy Spirit brings it alive to you. The Holy Spirit has to be a part of speaking out of these pages. That's why we say it's a, a, a live, it's a living, breathing, double-edged sword, you know, all of those terms that are used for the scriptures because it is alive because of how the words speak. But the gospel comes not just in words. First Thessalonians 1.5, it says, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, First Thessalonians 1.5. You know, there's a, another concept in here that um, we, we could spend a lot of time on, and uh, there's a lot of debate around. You know, we talked about um, the Calvinists, Arminian. We, we've talked about it, quite a few different things on, on the spectrum. And the passage in here, but when he who had set me apart, before I was born and who called me by his grace. So, you know, that's a, a verse that sometimes can be used and we can look at it and um, go into the whole once saved, always saved, eternal security or free will, because I, I read a commentator once who said, countless scalps have been laid at the feet of the debate of eternal security versus free will. And I loved how that author put it because he wasn't sitting there trying to debate which one was right or wrong. He was lamenting the fact that in the church, when we should be seeking agreement, Paul went to Peter to agree with them. He didn't seek his approval. He didn't seek any of that, but he wanted the agreement of brotherhood that even though there's some things and we'll read when we get into chapter two, that there were some things that Peter and Paul did not agree on. And Paul even calls him out. <laughs> um, yeah, the newbie calls out 
the apostle, um, you know, and yet does it in the right manner. But too many scalps have been laid. Now, I believe that there is every belief has an outcome, right? Um, every belief has an outcome. We kind of talked about this yesterday with some different things when it comes to the rapture. Um, so, you know, it, it, the end times beliefs, um, I, I gave two examples, one being creation and one being uh, end times belief. And so I, I had a professor who helped translate in the NIV. Um, so there were two professors at, at the uh, Bible college that I was at. Um, one, and... Uh, <laughs> That's good, Frank. Um, you know, one was uh, um, one was a a firm believer in uh, the rapture. The other one was not. And, and here's how they would come at it because they didn't debate, they didn't fight, and I loved it. They set this example so many times and in class and different things. And he goes, "Look, if you're right, I will high five you all the way up in the rapture. But if I'm right," then I'm prepared to go through the tribulation, not seeking to be let out of it. You know, and there's a, an outcome to that belief. Same thing with creation versus like evolution. Okay. And I kind of mentioned that. So I went to a college, another college. Um, yeah, I've been to a handful of colleges. Um, but my first university that I went to, the science professor was a creation scientist. So what that is just in a nutshell is that the seven days of creation are not literal and that there are gaps in between. He would believe the dinosaurs died off before man came around in day three, which doesn't fit if, you know, sin didn't enter the world and death didn't enter the world. But, you know, they, there's all these, these extra things. And uh, um, when I asked him one time about it outside of class, because I never debated him in class, but uh, outside of class, he goes, it takes more faith than I'm ready to warrant that God created the world in seven days. And I said, it takes more faith than I'm ready to warrant, warrant uh, that it, he only took seven days because he could have gone like that. And it all could have been created with age. The you know, Grand Canyon, everything could have been created as God saw fit in his own imagination, right? And there's an outcome to that belief. If you believe that God, and I don't, I'm not trying to step on toes, hear me out. If you have never challenged and you believe in the belief of evolution, that maybe God spoke the first Adam into existence, Atom, not Adam, the human, but Atom, and those Adams had to bang around for billions of years before it created one thing and before then it created, and then it took forever. How does that play out in your belief in the power of God versus a belief that says the very voice could cry out, Lazarus, come out, and a four-day dead man who stunk of decay and rot could come out of a tomb. Think about the power of God that is in those beliefs. Every belief has an outcome. And, and so that's the challenge that we have sometimes with some of these beliefs. And the same thing with the eternal security the argument. And I know I kind of tease that and I, I don't want to go into too much, but here's one great way 
So we've argued, how do you balance the sovereignty of God with the free will of man? And I have great friends who will argue till they're blue in the face one way or the other. They will. Many scalps are laid at the altar of this argument. John Wesley, as an Anglican priest, believed in eternal security. And that is not a heretical statement, okay? But he placed it not in the doctrine of sin, but in the doctrine of God, where it aligns completely with a doctrine of free will. Because God created time. And so however you describe it, whether it be he foreknew or predestined, right? There's two different words there. God is above time. So, so look at it this way. Okay, my little crude drawings. You got to love these by now. We are human beings. We see everything linearly. We see a past and we see a present. It's like this, you could say, is Isaiah. This may be in here, you know, and here is Daniel, and there's the cross, and there's us, and there's end times glorification. That God who created time is up here. He already knows it's all played out. It's all happened. Your choices have already been made. It's done. That's how he can describe what happens here to somebody thousands of years before. And he can describe what happens here to people thousands of years before because he is above time. And so when you sit and you try to describe that, words can come out like he foreknew. He predestined? He elected? I, I don't know. I believe fully that we have free will. I also believe, here's another way that somebody described free will. There are times in our lives where God will give us two choices. Yes or no. Follow or don't follow. And then there are some areas in life that God will give us hundreds of choices. But he controls the outcomes. Remember I said there's a tension in theology that always has to be kept. A tension. Which is what John Wesley did with his still using a term of eternal security, which means something completely different today, which is why most Nazarene preachers would never preach that term. Because instantly, many think, well, I, I was baptized as an infant, so it doesn't matter what I do. And, and I'll tell you, by the way, John MacArthur, who is one of the uh, a staunch kind of reformists, five-point tool of full eternal security, even will say, you can't fall out of God's grasp, but you can wiggle yourself out of God's grasp. Remember the story of the Israelites? constantly turning, constantly forsaking God, but God never forsake, forsook them, right? Punish them a few times. They had their choices. He gave them the choice to trust and obey, 
and they chose sometimes to do it, sometimes to do it half-heartedly, and yet he was always there. He punished, he corrected, he guided, all trying to lead them to the point that they would choose him. That's the sovereignty and the free will mix, right? Our God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us as plan A so that we could choose him through the Holy Spirit drawing us. We could spend a whole lot of time um, just on that one topic of eternal security versus free will. It's hard to understand sometimes. And like I said, a lot of scalps have been laid on that debate. And I'd rather focus on the glory of Jesus Christ, because isn't that what he said here at the end? That all these things, you know, that they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. That's the key. Not that he was, not that, you know, Paul was glorified, not that we're glorified. I don't, I could care less if anybody ever said and came up to me again, well, that was an anointed sermon. I would rather hear them say, God spoke to me. God be praised, right? Don't ever have to praise me. It's all about God's glory. Now, some encouragement once in a while is good. Okay, you won't lie. But we really just... God's... It, it, Facebook just took me to that other page again. It happened at the beginning, too. It's kind of funny. Um, hey, Jason. So God needs to be praised and glorified in and through it all. That's what it's all about. Our choices, our will. Morning, Karen, for his glory, for his praise, and for his honor. God, I thank you. Thank you for this day. Even waking up with snow on the ground in the middle of April. It's uh, Northeast Ohio. Uh, God, we thank you because you're still present. In the midst of a world that's kind of in chaos, you are still present. Why do the nations rage? That's what the psalmist said. God, in the midst of it all, can we see your control and your faithfulness? Thinking of Ruth and Naomi and the faithfulness that you showed to Naomi, even when she was bitter. You still had a plan. So God, we trust you. We trust that you have a plan in and through all of this for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. We love you. We seek you to be glorified. Draw all creation, all man unto you. In the name of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow morning.